You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we're in chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 12 for our text this morning. We are making our way through the Gospel according to Luke in our series from the manger to the throne. Today we arrive at chapter 12. And I want us to read together verses 1 through 12. Church, this is God's holy inspired, and authoritative word. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, being Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who asks, who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about what you should, um, how you should defend yourself or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Church, let's pray and ask God's help as we hear His word. Oh, gracious Father, We come to you now in the name of Jesus. Because of the person and work of Jesus, we can approach your throne. And we do so now with confidence as your beloved children. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, which you've given to us freely, or that the Spirit would illuminate the words of this text. And it would be applied to our heart. And that we would leave here this morning changed. Do your great work for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There are certain words we use frequently in conversation, but often we do so without reflecting on the meaning of those words. One example is the word encouragement. We often use the word encouragement. We talk about receiving encouragement, giving encouragement. But most of the time when we use that word, we're using it to speak of seeking to cheer someone up who's feeling low or experiencing difficulties. To us, the word encouragement just means to lift someone's spirits. And though there's a degree of truth to that word, The word means far more than just cheering someone up. Think about the word, encourage. We're not simply cheering someone up. To encourage someone is to cheer them on in such a way that they gain courage to to face whatever trial or difficulty they are experiencing. See, when we're discouraged, meaning we lack courage, we need to be encouraged. And that's why, as Christians, we are actually commanded, commanded numerous times in the New Testament to encourage one another as often as possible. If time permitted this morning, I could take you to numerous texts in the New Testament that doesn't suggest, that commands, that when we are together, every chance we get, we must encourage one another. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think God would command that His people, when they are together, every chance they get, they would encourage one another? Here's why. Because he knows how easy it is for us to be discouraged. And the Lord knows how much discouragement can affect us. Discouragement can just cause us to be weary. We are in great need of encouragement. And that brings us to our our text that I just read a moment ago. Luke chapter 12 verses 1 through 12. Here's what's happening in this text. Jesus observes a very, very large crowd pressing in around him. And think about this. If they're pressing in around him, they're pressing in around his disciples. They're they're, they're pressing in around him and his disciples. And not only is he very aware of this large crowd, he's keenly aware that the opposition from the religious leaders is intensifying. That's the context of this passage. Jesus is now in a place that more people are coming to him. And yet, as we heard last week, the religious leaders despise and disdain for him is only intensifying. And guess who's caught in the middle? The disciples. And notice what Jesus does to care for them. In this moment, Jesus tunes out the crowd in order to focus on his disciples because they were in need of encouragement. That's what Jesus is doing here in the passage we just read. He tunes out the crowd and he makes eye contact with his disciples in order 
to encourage him. See, Jesus was aware that with so many people flocking to him, and yet not all of them admired him, this must have had an impact on his disciples. Think about the last three weeks and our time in most of Luke chapter 11. For the last three weeks, we reflected on some of the ways and some of the reasons people reject Jesus. And it's been helpful for us to consider why is it that if Jesus is so great, there are people who want nothing to do with him. In the weeks ahead, we're, we're going to come back and we're going to see even more reasons people reject Jesus. But today, today we're going to push the pause button. Because today we're going to let Jesus care for us as he did his original disciples. Because today, Jesus wants to impart us with courage. Jesus wants us to have courage. Because as, soon, as much as he was aware of the impact that his life and his ministry had on the original disciples, he's aware that today, as our Savior, though we love him, and though we want to make much of him, sometimes it gets really hard to follow him in a world that we live in. And we can become discouraged, and Jesus wants to encourage us this morning. Look again now at the text. And Luke does something at the very beginning that we must not miss because it, it doesn't just set us up for the rest of the passage, it actually connects this week's passage with last week's passage. It's those three words, in the meantime, or you could also say, meanwhile. Now we can just think what's taking place here is what Jesus is about to describe, why all the crowds is coming. But actually go back to last week, verses 53 through 54 of chapter 11. Remember after Jesus went into the Pharisee's home, and said all the hard things he did. It says that he went away from there. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard. And to provoke him to speak about many things. Lying in wait for him. To catch him in something he might say. So think about what's happening here. Luke informs us that the opposition towards Jesus was increasing and at the same time, the onlookers were growing in number. Do you, do you get the sense of what's happening here? The, the opposition is growing and the onlookers are growing. So much so, there are so many onlookers, we're told that they are numbering in the thousands. And it's be starting to become a little dangerous. They are pressing in to see Jesus. Now think about this. All the onlookers and all the opposition must have made it really hard at times for the disciples not to have felt overwhelmed, to have grown discouraged. Can you relate to that feeling? All of the onlookers and all of the opposition can sometimes leave us feeling overwhelmed, and discouraged. See, I, I'm aware that this morning, th there are, are some here 
that you find it so hard and exhausting to follow Jesus among your family members because you might be the only one who's following Jesus. And though you love him, and though you want your family to know him, it's really hard. You love your family. But sometimes you feel like an outsider. For others, maybe it's not your family situation. Maybe for some of the students here, you find it really hard to follow Jesus in the school environment that you find yourself in. You, you want your classmates, your peers to know Jesus, but you're aware that the environment you're in, that if you really stood up for your faith and spoke up, it could cause you to really be ostracized. And depending on where you're at, some college campuses, secular college campuses, you could even be persecuted. It's hard. And you feel it. Or maybe for you it's not your family. Maybe it's not your school. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe you're aware that you work with coworkers, though they love and respect you and you work well with them. You're aware they reject Jesus and don't stand for the things that represent his kingdom. And sometimes you wonder, if I speak up, if they reject Jesus, will they reject me too? And that weighs on you. It's hard. See, church, let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus when Jesus can be so misunderstood and rejected by so many. And it's not because we don't love Him. It's not because we don't want to magnify Him with our life. But due to the opposition we face as those who belong to Him, sometimes seeking to be a witness to a witness of Jesus in this world can be downright frightening. It can be frightening. Have you ever felt this way? I'm sure the disciples must have felt this way in a way that was very unique. But have you ever felt like as a Christian you live in a glass house and everyone is watching everything you do and every word you speak is being recorded in people's minds so that one day they can turn around and say, oh, you're telling me about Jesus? Remember that time at the water cooler 13 years ago what you said? And it can just become exhausting. So here's the question. The question I feel like the Lord wants to answer for us through this text this morning. How do we faithfully follow Jesus in a world of onlookers and opponents? How do we follow Jesus faithfully in a world of onlookers and opponents? Here's, here's the, the way we do it. The only way to live out our faith each day is for us to be more consciously aware of God than we are aware of people. That's what we take away from Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. The only way for us to live out our faith each day is to be far more consciously aware of God than we are of people. So how do we do that? Well, Jesus offers three things 
to His disciples that will serve us today in order to live more aware of God than people. Here's the first thing we're to do. Be aware of hypocrisy. So Jesus tells His disciples in verses 1 through 3. Skip to the middle of verse 1. Jesus then speaks after Luke sets up the, the context. And this is what He says to His disciples. Be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. If you recall back to last week, chapter 11, verses 37 through 44, do you remember what happened last week? Jesus unmasked the hypocrisies of the Pharisees. He gets invited to this dinner party by a Pharisee, and while he's there, Jesus unmasked. He pulls back the veil on these folks that everyone else would have thought, those are the most religious people we've ever met. And Jesus pulls back the mask and he reveals their hypocrisy. See, the Pharisees tried so hard to look godly even though they weren't. They're looking, they're trying to make everybody think that. And they may have everybody fooled. And Jesus comes in and he rips off the mask. And he calls out their hypocrisy. So what is hypocrisy? Well, there's probably several ways you could define it, but often I think we use it in a way, this is another one of those words we often use without really understanding its meaning. I don't think to be a hypocrite, at least in this context, is just simply you say one thing and you fail to do it. Well, that's... That could be a form of hypocrisy or it could be a form of none of us are perfect. So we have to be careful that we don't call something hypocrisy in that way. Here's what hypocrisy seems to be. If we think back to last week and these Pharisees and Jesus not just said, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So what he was pulling in back last week and unveiling is hypocrisy. So what is it? Here's my definition. It's when the inner uncleanliness of a person's life remains hidden because of their outward appearance or persona. Is that how you think about hypocrisy? Hypocrisy isn't the person who's saying one thing and doing another. Hypocrisy is the person that on the inside, oh, they are a mess. But on the outside, you would never. Everything looks great. They pray a certain way. They talk a certain way. They have everybody thinking they are so godly. But oh, if we could see the inside. Remember what Jesus said last week when he, when he addressed the Pharisees and he talked about their hypocrisy. He said, you, you are like a dirty cup or a dirty bowl. Not dirty on the outside. Oh man, it's pristine on the outside. But filthy on the the inside. Friends, that's what hypocrisy is. It's when the inner uncleanliness 
of a person's life remains hidden because of, the outward, because of their outward appearance and persona. But here's the thing. Here's the thing Jesus wants us to be aware of. What is hidden will eventually be revealed. A person can only wear a mask for so long or play a part for so long, but eventually they will be found out. Just like the hypocrites who Jesus exposed as phonies. Now pay careful attention to Jesus' warning to his disciples. Think about what he just said to them as he seeks to care for them. The first thing he tells them is not, don't be afraid. He tells them, be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, Jesus is using Old Testament imagery to illustrate what hypocrisy is like. And, and we don't have time this morning to go back to the Old Testament to look at all the places in which this idea, this, this image of of leaven would have been used and very well known among not only Jesus' audience, but the Old Testament um, people of God. They would have understood this imagery. And, and Jesus says the Pharisees' hypocrisy is kind of like that leaven. It gets in the mix and it affects the entire batch. Just a little. Causes the whole thing to rise. Just a little, and it ruins the whole batch. Think about what Jesus just said to his disciples. This is important for us to get. By him telling them that, do you know what he just communicated to them? You're susceptible to hypocrisy. You are susceptible to to hypocrisy, And then he goes on to tell them that they need to be aware of hypocrisy because it will spread through them and it will eventually ruin them. I doubt anyone here this morning is pro-hypocrisy. We hate hypocrisy. Here, here's the thing we need to be aware of. None of us are exempt. None of us are exempt. That's why Jesus spoke these words to his disciples, because they weren't off the hook. So how do we fight hypocrisy then? How do we fight it if, if, it can, if we're all susceptible to it, and then when it gets in our life, even a little bit, it expands and will eventually take us out? How, how, how do we fight this hypocrisy? Well, first of all, I think there's two things Jesus points out here are two things we take away from this. First of all, we must not forget that God sees all, knows all, and will eventually reveal what is hidden. Look at verses 2 through 3 again. It says that what is hidden will be revealed. What is spoken will be heard. What's not said there is who's going to do that. And in the scriptures, when something is said is going to happen, and it doesn't say who's going to do it, it's what, it's what theologians call the divine passive. Meaning, God is going to do this. 
So it's not just saying, hey, listen, hypocrisy will eventually be found out. You can only lie so long. You know, we tell our kids things like that. That's not what's happening. It's not just saying, eventually, you're going to be found out. God himself sees and knows and one day will pull back the curtain and say, just like he did to the Pharisees, do you see what's really going on on the inside? But there's a greater reason and a greater way that we fight this kind of hypocrisy. And it's this, we must seek to please God more than people. We must seek to please God more than people. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Galatia. In Galatians 1 verses, uh, verse 10, Paul says this, For Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's important for us to understand at the core of hypocrisy, is the sin of people-pleasing. If we're going to take Jesus' warning seriously, that we're all in danger of allowing that little bit of leaven to come in and to expand, what's behind hypocrisy? If hypocrisy isn't simply just saying one thing and doing another, if hypocrisy is, I want everybody to think this about me. Though I'm not, I want everybody to think this. Do you know what's motivating hypocrisy? People-pleasing. So let me ask you this question. Where are you aware of situations in which you've sought to please people more than God? Where have you done that recently. Maybe it was in a small way. Maybe you didn't speak up when you should have spoken up. Maybe you told half of the story, but not the full story because, well, you were worried. What will these people think of me? Where you are aware of any kind of people pleasing that is causing you to to want to please people more than God. Here's what you need to be aware of. Hypocrisy is at work. Trace the two. Where there's people pleasing, there will be hypocrisy. And here's the warning. Hypocrisy will ruin you if you do not repent of it, and repent of its root cause. If you do not repent of hypocrisy, and most importantly, repent of its root cause, then that hypocrisy will be like leaven. It will spread. And one day you will find yourself in places you never imagined. And all the while, everybody might be applauding and thinking they are so godly. But on the inside, you are a mess. Now, that's the first thing Jesus offered his disciples to help them 
combat this desire to please people and therefore to have this hypocrisy. But there's a second thing he tells them in verses 4 through 7. Be more afraid of God than people. Look at verses 4 through 7. I want to read it again. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, at, at first, this may not seem very encouraging. We may think that what Jesus just said sounds harsh and threatening. Oh, but, but do not move too quickly past that one word Jesus uses to address his disciples. He calls them friends. See, those who had left everything to follow him, even to the point of persecution, were more to him than just followers. They were his friends. And church, if Jesus is our Savior, He calls us His friend. He calls us His friend. And as a friend, He wants, he wants to care for us as we, we often can become discouraged and frightened. And I think that's where the disciples are at this point. The grammar of this text doesn't Make it sound like Jesus is just letting them know, eventually you're going to be afraid. It, it appears, according to the, uh, in light of the grammar, they were afraid. So he's not just saying this to prepare them. He's looking around at the crowds coming in. People are, are falling on one another. He's aware of the Pharisees in the crowd that are listening in to say, man, if he says one thing, we got him. And here they are in the midst of it, and he can see it in their eyes. He can see it in their face and he wants to care for them but notice notice how he cares for them he doesn't calm their fears by telling them guys you have nothing to worry about remember remember where we are in luke's gospel at this point jesus is on his way to jerusalem to die on a cross to save his people from their sins and do you remember what he's already told his disciples not only am I going to the cross, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't minimize the risk to care for them. He doesn't even downplay their fears. Here's what he does. He informs them and he informs us. We will not overcome the fear we are experiencing unless we believe God is more powerful than any persecutor. And that he cares for us far more personally than anyone. And he cares for us meticulously. Do you see how he's encouraging them? He's not threatening them. 
He's saying, oh guys, I could see why you would be afraid. Afraid of death. Afraid of of what some of these, these leaders could do to you. But do you know who I am? I am far more powerful. Fear me. Fear the Lord. And know that every detail of your life The hairs on your head are numbered. And you are more valuable, Jesus said, than the the sparrows that, that are sold for change. And yet God cares for them and knows about them. And not one of them, we're told in the Gospel of Matthew, falls out of the sky without the Lord knowing. And he says, aren't you more valuable than them. Do you notice the argument Jesus makes in verses 5 through 7? He moves from the lesser to the greater. That's how he seeks to encourage his disciples. He moves from the lesser to the greater. Here's why you shouldn't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Eventually they'll be done and you'll die. There's something far greater. So on There's someone far greater that you should fear far more than people. And if God cares for the sparrows, how much more who have given up everything to come after him and to follow him and to call him Lord, how much more do you mean to him? Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's seeking to encourage his disciples and church we must hear these words from jesus and we must be moved by these words and motivated to fear god more than man here's why because we know who our god is and we know how much we mean to him and we know that our life is in his hands so we don't fear governments we don't fear laws we don't fear the threat of punishment not because it's not scary but because there is one far greater and our life is in his hands and no one can touch us apart from his permission and if they take our life away not only will it be according to his plan we will immediately see his face and live with him forever. They can't take that away. And Jesus says, let that encourage you. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful exposition of Luke's gospel, I've quoted from the late Bishop of Liverpool many times, he says this, and I think this is helpful. Going back to this idea of the fear of man and learning to fear God more than man. He says, the fear of man is one of the greatest obstacles which stands between the soul and heaven. What will man say of me? What will they think of me? What will they do to me? How often these little questions have turned the balance against the soul and have kept men bound hand and foot by sin and the devil. He then says thousands would never hesitate a moment to storm a breach or face a lion. 
but we dare not face the laughter of relatives, neighbors, and friends. <laughs> then he says, but what is the remedy against the fear of man? How are we to overcome this powerful feeling and break the change with chains which it throws around us? There is no remedy like that which our Lord recommends. We must supplant the fear of man by a higher and more powerful principle, the fear of God. We must look away from those who can only hurt the body to him who has all dominion over the soul. And then he goes on to quote from the bishop John Hooper, who was burnt at the stake. And while, right before he was burnt at the stake, one of the Catholic persecutors told him, all you have to do is recant, and it will all go away. Hooper did not recant. This is what he says. Life is sweet, and death is bitter, but eternal life is more sweet. And eternal death is more bitter. And they lit the flames. See, if we do not believe that is to be true, we will allow fear to keep us from living aware of God in our day-to-day -day practices, in our day-to-day -day life. Which brings us to our third and final thing. Jesus tells us that we must, not be, we must be unashamed of Christ. We must be unashamed of Christ. Look, look at verses 8 through 10. Jesus goes on to say, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Listen, listen carefully to what Jesus has said to his disciples. His disciples who are fearful, they're fearful at this time to acknowledge him due to the threat of persecution. What does Jesus do? He holds out a promise. He says, guys, this is all you have to do. And I know it's not easy, but this is it. You don't have to, you don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to bring your moral report card. Acknowledge me before men. And I will say to all of heaven, he's mine. What a wonderful promise. All you got to do is say, he's my savior. And I will say to everyone in heaven, I'm his savior. Jesus holds out a wonderful promise. If we acknowledge him before men, he will acknowledge us before the host of heaven. However, if we deny him and fail to repent, we're told we will face eternal consequences see those who reject jesus and reject him indefinitely 
We're told are, are rejecting the very presence of God. That's what it means when it says that you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. They are rejecting the very presence of God, and by rejecting Jesus, they will forfeit the forgiveness of God that Jesus offers them as their Savior. Now, I am aware that there's probably many questions that come to your mind when you hear talk of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or what is often called the unpardonable sin. I'm fully aware that this topic can bring about much confusion and much fear I think a lot of people have wondered, have I committed this sin? Or has someone I know committed this sin? So here's what I want to do. I just want to give you a definition. I want to point out just a few things to make it clear what it is and what it isn't. And then we'll move to verses 11 and 12. Here's a, a great definition from a man by the name of Graham Cole. He says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is that self-righteous this is an important word, persistent refusal to embrace the offer of salvation in Christ. It's to set one's face against the Spirit's testimony to Christ as the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that is a sin that cannot be Forgiven. It is a self-righteous, persistent, to, that, that continues to refuse and embrace the offer of salvation in Christ. That means if someone you know, if someone you know or maybe you yourself have ever given into fear and lacked courage to stand for Christ among your peers or your co-workers or your family, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. That's what Jesus means when he says... Even if you speak against the Son of Man, you haven't committed that. What does he mean by that? Well, think of Peter. As we get to chapter 22, Peter three times in public. Weren't you with him? No. Yeah, we think you were with him. Stop saying that. Three times he denies him. And finally, on the third time, outright, I'm not with him. And him and Jesus make eye contact. And it says, and then Peter ran from there and he wept. He repented. So we know that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that if you've ever had one of those moments where you've given into fear and you lacked courage and you didn't stand up when you should have stood up, that doesn't mean you've committed that sin. Or what about the Apostle Paul? In 1 Timothy, listen to these words. He actually says he committed blasphemy against Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Actually, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So, the question is not, have you ever not stood up 
when you should have stood up? Have you ever not spoken up when you should have spoken up? The question is, right now, today, do you confess Jesus as your Lord? See, those who commit the unpardonable sin are those who never repent. So have you repented of your unbelief? Do you acknowledge you're a sinner and your only hope for salvation is Jesus? If the answer is yes, then you've not committed this sin. Now, let's finish here with verses 11 and 12 and look at just one thing. I think Jesus tells us as we wrap this up that is helpful, but I, I felt like that that little statement by Jesus could have just opened up Pandora's box and left us all wondering, oh man, what does that mean? Have I done that? Hopefully there's some clarity there. Now there's one last thing Jesus says to his disciples in verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How encouraging is that? That when we're forced to defend our faith in Christ, get this, God will be with us and help us. How kind of the Lord. He doesn't say, listen, I don't want you to be afraid. I need you to acknowledge me before men. Now, good luck. He says, I want you to stand strong. Say what you need to say. Confess me before men. And when it comes time, the Holy Spirit himself is going to give you the words to say. That's a helpful and encouraging words from the Savior. And yet, listen, if we're honest, though we can read this passage in moments where we're facing what, what, the, what the disciples would have faced, we're standing before people. For them, it was standing in the synagogue and standing before rulers. When we're standing in front of others and they're saying, really, you believe Jesus is the only way? You really believe the Bible among all the holy books is the only inspired word of God? You really believe all those things? You know what we can be tempted to do? I'm tempted this way. We are tempted to be more conscious of our adversaries than our advocate. In that moment, I'm thinking, oh man, how am I going to answer? Oh man, they look hostile. Oh man, I don't even know how to, how to respond to that. Oh man, I'm afraid if I say this. In that moment, I'm more aware of my argument and my adversary than my advocate. And the Holy Spirit is called our advocate and He will help us. But if we forget, listen, we're going to be anxious and overwhelmed by the thought of having to speak up. So how do we fight that natural anxiety, and to act upon the promise that Jesus gives us that when it's time, He will give us aid. Here's what we do. We pray for supernatural help. Why do I say that? 
Go back to chapter 11, verse 13. Jesus said, and teaching his disciples how to pray. Don't you know you have a great father who gives you many gifts? If you ask for the Holy Spirit, he will give them to you. What if in that moment where I'm feeling bombarded by people saying, well, what about this and what about that? What about instead of running through my mind all the things I'm going to say? If I just, Jesus, you said to me that when it's time to open my mouth, the Spirit will give me the words to say, give me the words to say. And then what if I acted upon that and just trusted that the Lord will meet me? Friends, following Jesus in a world of onlookers and among spiritual opposition can be frightening and it can create much anxiety within us. But get this, our greatest obstacle, I was aware of of this this week as I was wrestling through this and applying it to my own life. I, I, I am aware that the greatest obstacle we face that keeps us from being courageous isn't found outside of us. It's found in us. It's our own unbelief. Do I really believe all that Jesus just said? Do I really believe people pleasing will ruin me? Do I really believe all the things Jesus just said, including the last thing? So church, here's how I want us to close. I want to pray. I want to pray a prayer of repentance for our unbelief. Because here's why we're not courageous. It's not because of what's outside of us. It's the unbelief inside of us to take Jesus at his word and to trust him even when it's hard. So let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for addressing us this morning. Thank you for caring for us and encouraging us because we do lack courage and we get discouraged. But Lord, we ask that this morning that you forgive us for being far more concerned with the opinions of others than we are of your promises. Lord, forgive us for fearing man more than we fear you. Lord, forgive us of our unbelief. We do not trust your promise that you will meet us when we open our mouths for the sake of your name. Lord, make us more aware of your presence at all times and in every situation. And I ask right now, right now, you would give us greater boldness in the days ahead through the power of the Holy Spirit to be a witness to Christ everywhere we go, even in the hard places. Thank you for encouraging us today so that we can live out our faith this week unafraid and unashamed. We ask all these things in your name and we pray them all for your glory. Amen.